0: and welcome to episode 46 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. Our guest this week is Fernando Palomo, who's worked at ESPN since 2000 as an anchor and soccer play-by-play commentator, both in English and Spanish. He and I worked together at ESPN for a decade covering World Cups, Euros, Champions League, and all things soccer. And he was one of the more receptive soccer people to using data and advanced stats on TV, and that's why I wanted to have him on. I found that the relationship between researcher or statistician, which was my role at ESPN, and TV announcer is a lot like the relationship between, say, a team analyst and a coach. Both the researcher and the analyst need to get good, clear information to the announcer or the coach. Who are then responsible for relaying that information to a larger audience of players coaches viewers etc the goals are of course different because coaches and players are often using more detailed data to improve to win games tv productions are trying to tell stories describe what's happening be entertaining but there's a lot about the roles and relationships that are similar and we'll talk about those things with fernando here Also in this conversation, he and I will talk about the upcoming Liverpool Real Madrid Champions League final, what he looks for in soccer statistics, how he uses data as an announcer, the differences in calling games in English versus Spanish, how data is used and received differently in the two languages, and a track and field record that I believe he still holds. Then producer Sergio de la Estrella will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with ESPN's Fernando Palomo. We're joined now on Expected Value by Fernando Palomo, ESPN soccer announcer. He's been there for over 20 years. Fernando, let's start just by your path, how you got here, so people have some background. What was your path from El Salvador to ESPN?
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Well, that's that's a question that could take a couple of episodes of your podcast, but my path is I'll keep it short and kind of sweet as well. It's it's a Path of a passionate sports guy that just wanted to see how far he could go. I uh, used to work at a TV station in El Salvador when I was in high school. So my junior year in high school, I was already making a little bit of cash working as an as a PA, basically just handing documents out and cutting wires like news wires. News wires would just come in in a, in a big never ending roll of paper, and, and I would just cut the sports part. And hand it over to our sports people. And that's how I got into sports TV. But I got to know what sports television was about. And then they saw my passion for anything Olympics and, and track and field in particular. and And they brought me in as a track announcer when I was a senior in high school. So I was on TV and a senior in high school. And I mean, I just loved that part. Not the fact that I was a senior in high school and on TV, but the fact that I was able to be in front of a mic and talk about the things that I loved, which were Basically, sports. I went to study at, at Texas A&M agricultural economics because my family is a coffee-growing family in El Salvador. So I wanted to go back and put our coffees in in little bags and put them on shelves all over the world. And that's why I went to A and M to study agricultural economics. But the bug was in. I mean, I was already bitten by it. I knew that television was something that I loved because it allowed me to talk about sports. So when I came back to El Salvador after graduating, I spent a couple of years in, a, in an advertising agency, but kept my side job as a sports announcer in, in El Salvador. So I sent a bunch of resumes out in 1999 before Y2K came around, uh, just wrote everything I've done in my career, right, including the announcing part, but thinking I was going to get or, or or I wanted to go into the marketing side of sports. And ESPN called me and, and here we are 22 years after the fact. They called me because they saw the little part that said that I was an announcer at some point. That's all
0: they needed. So now you're going to be in France for the Champions League final coming up. But I want to ask just generally, what are you looking for in this final? Liverpool or Real Madrid? I mean, Liverpool's the favorite, but Real Madrid has the magic. What are you looking for in this final?
1: I've learned after so many years of calling Champions League games and Champions League finals in particular, I've learned not to go against Madrid in any <laughs> I mean, the last one they won was in 1980. The last one they lost, I should say, was in 1981 in Paris against Liverpool. So you'd say, okay, the story is there. You know, we like to tell stories. And what a coincidence that they are bound to lose another final in Paris against the same rival. Well, no, not even that. I'm going against that. I go against the fact that these guys know how to play these types of games. And, you know, the other guys know that as well. So I'm looking for a very even game. Let's not get fooled by by the fact that the, there was a two-goal difference in Kiev in, in 2018. That game was much closer than the two-goal difference ended up telling us. The story was was Loris Karius in goal and, and that horrendous night that he had. I think Madrid are, are a better team than they were at the beginning of the year. And I think the same of Liverpool as well. But Madrid have been focusing on Paris for two weeks before the game. And Liverpool has still had to focus on the FA Cup final on the title race in the Premier League. All in all, Madrid have just been Paris focused for so long that I think they're, they're going to be, they're going to even out whatever difference it is between the two squads. To answer to your question, uh, a very even game.
0: Any thoughts on how they keep pulling these upsets off? We talk about the magic. You know, as a numbers guy, I want to try and find the numbers to explain it. And there almost aren't any other than it's just this Real Madrid mystique. Any thoughts on how they keep pulling off these upsets through these you're knockout a sports stages? Sports
1: guy, Paul, you're a sports guy. Any story on any NCAA basketball tournament that has had a team pull up an upset in three straight rounds leading up to the final? Any story on whatever professional sports team in the US that has overcome deficits in the last quarter of their games while not being the favorite at each stage? And not even playing better than their rival. I don't find any of that.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, I can think of like, you know, the Chiefs made the Super Bowl with some comebacks, but they were the better team. You know, you can think of, uh, and there's some, you know, eight seeds that have made the title game in NCAA basketball or something. But yeah, this is a different, you know, it's over, you know, multiple legs in each stage. It's
1: a different animal that... I was talking to some friends of mine. Granted, they're both Argentinian. And they said, you know, the only parallel I can find to this story is Argentina in 1990, when they were never favorites against brazil yugoslavia or italy before they made it to the final and they ended up pulling each game yeah that's good but that's the only story i can think of other than than this one right now right and and they pulled it off they they're gonna make it into the final after losing four games all year i mean they've lost four games and they still have a shot a shot of winning the champions league now you ask me how do they do it I've asked Madrid players from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and today. And their common answer is they do it because it's Real Madrid. And I go, guys, <laughs> we cannot just say that. I mean, that's yeah. not only it sounds arrogant after you just say, hear it so often, give me some more. Give me an explanation on how they do it. And they go, well, anywhere you walk, be it at their sports facilities, or being in the stadium, or their offices, or the street where you meet madridistas, they ask you not to give up, never to give up. That's what they have to do. That's what they think as players. They have to do. Don't give up until the end. Now they have great players, right? I could tell that, you know, my my six year old, my uh, sixth grader who's eleven, I could tell that to her team, you know, never give up, and they might still lose but they'll have that same attitude Madrid has. Madrid has just, you know, great players as well, and and they don't give up. So you put those two things together, I don't think numbers can explain it. Any stats or tactics that you you'll be keeping an eye on particularly for that game? Interceptions, recoveries, because I think the line of passes that Liverpool requires within the mid-50 percent of the field, of the long field, is key for the development of the outside play. Interceptions and in Casemiro's performance will be probably one that I'll be paying attention to. That and recoveries in the top third, meaning how high the pressure is and how high the, how high pressure is working for both teams. That's basically what I'll be looking at. I mean, and, and then during the game, you know, things come up that I like to look at and I see sometimes that Madrid's efficiency runs hand in hand with Luca Modric's passing. So if Modric is on and completing all his passes, Madrid's clicking is what you're saying. If, if Modric goes over 92% of completed passes, you know, Madrid is clicking. Cross is going over, which this year he has, and that's been a stat that I've kept an eye on for a while. Cross has been going over 90% since he came back from his injury, and he did so for the longest time I've seen him at, at Madrid. And I think the fact that those two players have been so good with the ball this season explains why Madrid have been the team they have been. So let's take a step back. And I just want to talk about kind of your process and how you incorporate
0: uh, numbers and information into a broadcast. So as an announcer, just generally speaking, how do you look to use numbers, whether it's you know a historical note, whether it's something from this game, something player specific? How do you generally look to use numbers as you're prepping for and calling a game?
1: I like to look at all of them. I like to look at as many numbers as I can, in particular because I think numbers can tell a story. And I think Bob Lee has the best definition of how to use that. He goes, they're like, like a street light, uh, like a lamppost on the street. You know, you can rely on it. You can you put your back on it and, and lean on it, but don't expect for it to always be lit for you. Don't expect for it always to shed a light on what you're doing. So that's, I do always try to keep numbers close to me, prior to the game, I like to see how a team can be described by just numbers. Put it, for example, Getafe, for example. There there were a team last year that committed a lot of fouls, used very little of the ball, had very little touches of the ball in the attacking third of the field, very little shots. And I wanted to compare and contrast those Getafe numbers to the first 10 or 12 games of, Bordalas, Pepe Bordalas, at Valencia, who was the Getafe coach last year. And funny enough, you could take the names out of the teams, and they were identical. And then I went to see what Valencia's numbers were before Bordalas took over, and their shot amount was higher. You can really see that there's a difference when a coach comes in. So When I first did Valencia, my story was Valencia in the first third of the season, my story was, you know, you, you bring in this coach who's already impacted after 10 games, the, the way they play in a way that the numbers are identical to what this coach carried before coming in so that just tells you not only he's caused an effect he's been the same coach he's brought in his ideas he's not taking over the players that he has at the team so that's one way to explain how teams act during a season right i like to see there's examples of teams that are in the bottom of the of the table as, as far as points go but they're high up the table When it comes to shot creation, to expected goals, to amount of touches in the last third of the field, they have a lot of players in the top 10 in in possession or touches of the ball. So there you go and say, what's wrong with this team? So defensively, they don't recover the ball. They're not as good in tackling. So you try to explain those things. You can't watch. You know, I do all 20 teams in La Liga, calling it for ESPN+. Plus. I do all 20 teams. I do a lot of, a lot of Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico. But then you end, you end up finding a Levante team maybe on match day 12. So you're not going to watch 11 matches of Levante. I might watch the last two but I want to understand what they were before those last two games. So that's where numbers come into play. You kind of analyze why a team acts the way they act and, and where they stand Atletico. And just to wrap it up, Atletico Madrid last season, champions of La Liga this season, they were struggling, right? So why were they struggling? You see Jan Oblak was at the bottom of the table in save percentage. The other three teams that were right next to them in that list were all fighting for relegation. You think okay, you're not going to blame it all on All Black, but he has definitely not had the safe percentage of a team that looks to fight for a championship. So, those things are the ones that I that I like to look at before I go into the game so I can you know understand why a team is coming into a, a particular game the way they're doing. Yeah, it's the old Dean Oliver quote said your eyes my eyes can watch one
0: game better than the stats can but stats watch all the games cuz you don't have to watch 20 games to get a, a quick uh, idea of what's going on let's say it's during a match you're calling a game what sort of numbers you know you've mentioned some of them already it depends on the game you know interceptions and pass completion percentages what other things do you kind of just have in that arsenal that you're keeping an eye on to try and tell the story of a game
1: and one is it's touches i'm calling the game so the i don't have as much time to to look at the numbers as when i'm calling the game but if i do so i like to keep an eye on touches who has touched the ball less you know sometimes you create yourself an idea of a game you're watching and you think oh i haven't seen this player i haven't seen that much of that player and then i go to the touches side just to confirm that okay i haven't seen this guy a lot because he really hasn't touched the ball The other thing is just because I've seen the numbers that this guy's carry before the game starts, the key figures, the key players of the team, I like to look at them and how they are acting up in relation to their numbers prior to the game, during the game I'm calling. The examples given before, you know, so Casemiro led the league in recoveries. How many recoveries has he had so far? Cross and Modric, you know, the pass percentage, or Sergio Busquets in the middle. How many times has he given the ball away in the first half? And then it's team-related stats. One that quickly caught my attention was uh, I've seen Barcelona cross the ball at a game against Granada more so than I've ever seen them before. How do I go into that stat to actually make that point and, and be truthful to my point without just... It being a, a wild interpretation of what I'm seeing. So I went to a, a our stats and I went to all the games they've played. I went to crosses and I tried to put all the games together as as far back as I could go. And I could not find more crosses in a game, you know, past the 80th minute, as Barcelona had done against Granada this season when they played him away. They ended up crossing the ball 54 times. Ooh. And wow. And that was to me unheard of from a Barcelona mm-hmm. team, and yeah. I was with Xavi already in in, in, We're in a Xavi in Xavi tenure, yeah. Xavi on board already. So you're thinking, okay, you cross the ball as an outlet to your system, or or is it the system itself? And that was right in the middle of the game, and it was just I was dumbfounded by it. Then the other ones are are, are logical to any announcer without him him or her being directly in love with stats to call a game, it's, you know, how many times have they actually been shut out after 45 minutes of a right. game? You know, or more or, historical type stuff. Exactly. Context is so key to have as a comparison, whether
0: it's a player level or team level. Kind of almost more from a, a process standpoint As your wheels are turning, you're calling a game. How do you decide this is worth the slide this stat in? Whether it's a stat somebody hands you or or you look up or it's a note that you had from before the game. Again, whether it's historical, advanced, how do you kind of decide, all right, this is the time I'm going to slide this stat or story. I'm just curious about the process for that as an announcer.
1: I'm also curious to learn about that process. I'm trying to master (laughs) that one. I mean, just to tell you a quick one, I don't know if you knew that a... Alexander Arnold's grandmother used to date, but used to. She's not anymore. Otherwise, it wouldn't been Alexander Arnold, the <laughs> one we know today. But she dated Sir Alex Ferguson. What? I read. Yeah. So everybody was like, whoa, that, that's a story, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm in the middle of telling that story when Alexander Arnold just decides to take the quickest corner kick we've ever seen, and then Devo Corrigi scores, and here year comes to come back. So my story was left untold until the end because he just Liverpool just all of a sudden pulled the weirdest comeback against Barcelona. So there you go. That's I put in a good story at the wrong time. You just want to know you have enough time to tell the story at some point. But as far as stats go, I like to I like to get them away, try to take them out of, not the system, of my system, but out of the broadcast as soon as possible. Like Barcelona going up for a corner kick. They're the team with the most headers in La Liga, right? So a header is about to happen. If I have a stat on a particular player, Luke de Jong, come in and, I don't know, this is not a true stat, but let's say four of his last five goals have come in the last five minutes of the game and they've all been headers, right? So you tell that as soon as the player comes in. Or goals from substitutes, as soon as a team that is trailing brings in a substitute into the game. So you try to create those scenarios where the stats actually are meaningful, right? right? Make it um, as relevant as possible. As relevant as possible to what the game is going on. You want the game to call the stat. You don't want to impose a stat on the game. Otherwise, it becomes something just related to the stat and you're not even watching the game anymore. But there are some times that you would put it in that I would do it soon into the game if there is something that is related or relevant to one player that we need to or want to keep an eye on what advice do you have so someone like me and you know my role
0: with the espn and since then you know i'm writing notes and hand them to announcers or send them on slack or whatever and i think this is relevant because these kinds of roles exist in sports not in sports we're trying to take numbers and communicate them clearly to somebody else like you, who has to communicate it to a wider audience. You know, similar thing for an analyst with a team has to give it to a coach and they have to translate it to players or other coaches. So what advice do you have for someone who is trying to communicate stats, data, numbers as succinctly as possible to someone like
1: you? Well, if you're going to do it hand in, in a handwritten note, check your handwriting. <laughs> That's my problem, yes. That's not uncommon to find something that, that is gonna be you know more noise than anything to the broadcast where you actually want to have something that is in a John Champion like hand written note and John Champion has the best handwriting I've ever seen. How to communicate them I guess becomes an evolving process between those People in the booth, and I'm not saying only the ones that have a microphone in front of in front of their face. Everybody that's involved in the broadcast need to know what the what the relevant events or what the um, relevant personalities of that game. Everybody involved needs to know what is relevant to those involved in the game, and that needs to happen in a prior meeting so that what you and I think is relevant is in sync. Because what you tell me. At some point, I might just throw it away because I, 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 one, might not make sense of it at that point, or I just, you know, discard it as not being relevant. You bringing your points and I'm bringing my points into the same table, and then we create a, a pool of relevant information that is to be paid attention to during the broadcast. So they're saying, like, like you said, Modric's pass percentage is a key
0: thing that you know you're going to talk about. Hand you that note, don't necessarily give me the Carvajal note. It may be something, but it may not be quite as on top of what you're trying to get at.
1: Yeah, or or, or let's, you know, go to Manchester City, for example. How many times has Rodri lost possession for their team? How many times has he gained back possession for their team? How many times has has Mares... Aside from historical data, how many times has Matt has lost possession. You know the two or three players that you think you know are not in tune technically with the rest of the team, but you bring that discussion prior to the game, and then over time, the discussion might not even need to be to happen. We'll both think of the same way, and then your notes will always be relevant to the broadcast because we're just thinking alike, putting aside the numbers for a minute. you've
0: called games in Spanish and English at the highest levels. What is different? about calling a game for in Spanish versus calling a game in English from your perspective?
1: Well, from my perspective, is the language skills I have in Spanish. I definitely do not have in English. That's one thing. Just uh, because Spanish was your first language. It, it, Spanish is my first language. And I don't have the vocabulary in, in, in English. to The John Champion words, to go back to exactly. things that he pulls out now and then. Or Peter Drury type yeah. m- mythological references. when When... Costas Mavropanos does something on the field. He brings <laughs> something back from Greek mythology. You know? Right, that is one difference from my perspective. On the other side, bringing in a common announcer to it, Spanish is definitely faster because we have been used to or brought up with a more dynamic way of calling, of calling the game. Whereas English just lets the game happen more just requires less of the commentator, I guess, to the broadcast than we do in Spanish. Put it in other words, we have not taken the radio component of game calling from television in Spanish as English has done
0: it. I mean, just from listening, I feel like the Spanish broadcasts are a little more emotional, a little more heightened. More energy, maybe, uh, or at least a different sort of energy. than. There's here a different the sort of energy, yeah. I
1: don't want to take away from anybody calling the game in English saying they don't have any energy to do. It's just completely different. We we bring it in, and we, we're excited about it. Not that they're not. Not that the English language is not excited, but we get excited about things that, that the English language does not get excited yeah. about. It's <laughs> a different that, thing. That's cultural difference, I guess. Let's put it that way. Now, when it comes to calling the game, From my perspective, Spanish speaker, calling it in English, it requires a lot more preparation on my side because I really do want to make sense when I say things that are, again, relevant to the broadcast and that I wanted to say them quick so that they don't become noise for the broadcast. So what I used to do, and when I still do, when I get a chance, is I try to write everything down. You know, if I'm going to write about a stat, I'm going to write the whole phrase out and and just read it. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't make it sound as if I'm reading the thing, but hey, I'm prepared enough where I, I've written it. Therefore, I have grammatically structured it correctly and I'm confident about saying it on air. You
0: don't have to think. save saves you that exactly. split second of thinking. Exactly. Yeah. How, if at all, do you use stats, data, numbers? How do you use that differently, if at all, for a Spanish audience versus an English audience?
1: I guess I would use more stats for an English audience because again they are more used to interpreting stats in the middle of a broadcast of any sporting event than than are the Spanish speakers. Now we have changed as Spanish audiences go we have changed over time. I remember when I started in Sports Center in Argentina we used to, we hosted the first Sports Center in a different language outside of the US. Back in 2000, the bottom line was something new for the Latin American audience. And so were the loaded graphs after a highlight on SportsCenter. And I remember talking to our producers back then saying, they were saying, you know, that's too much information for our viewers to handle. And me thinking, I don't think it is. I used to watch a lot of SportsCenter growing up. In El Salvador, even on cable, but then coming to the U.S. for college, I used to watch a lot of sports, and so I was used to that. So that process, I was already on the other side. It took Spanish audiences or Latin American audiences a little bit more time to get used to the to the visual noise that having a lot of information on the screen at the same time provided. But I guess we're over that, and and 20 years after, we can put the same thing and and listen to multiple conversations at once and make sense of them. I mean you're as
0: plugged into the soccer world as just about anybody. So what have you seen kind of as far as how just in general beyond TV like just how data is used? How have you seen that creep more and more into just your
1: typical conversations you have with people in the soccer world over the last, you know, decade or two? I think because it exists and it's available to those that can that can access it, data becomes a key component to any narrative that has to do with the game. Got to be able to back it up with something. Exactly, exactly. It's it's not me and my interpretation of things. It's my interpretation of things supported by the historical information provided by data. It gives no room for. I'm not saying qu- questions or or arguments because you can always argue. Of course, you can always find a data that proves your data wrong or that at least proves the other person's point in a different way. But I think it has become it it is it's been adapted more over the last i would say 5 years in our industry in in both languages i would say but even more so in spanish nowadays because again it's readily available to to all i would think you know unless you get into extremely complicated data that requires you know to go past the paywall to to access it a lot of the things that that are out there are being used by those that are interested in telling stories more holistically cover more of of get all the different
0: angles on stuff
1: yeah it used to be where well you know when i started in this field when they said oh soccer is not assist was not something that was you know readily used in soccer broadcasting back 20 years ago and and the position of, of those not using it was like soccer is not the NBA and it is not the NBA there are a lot of things that numbers can't tell you from a soccer game and I don't know how many things data I said soccer can't tell you from a that numbers can't tell you from a soccer game I don't know how many variables are left out there that cannot be told for a basketball game you can really read a basketball game just for by numbers it's
0: amazing how things have changed so fast in the last decade or so. All right. So we wrap things up here with our playing favorites segment where we go through a number of your favorite things. So let me start with just what is your favorite
1: number, your lucky number, favorite number? Ah, that was a good one. You know, I read it. You sent them before. And 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 to be honest, I, I used to play with number three because I wanted to be a number three when I played soccer, but it's six. I don't know why. All right. No reason. That's good enough. Uh, who's your favorite player as a kid? Who's my? I growing up in El Salvador, I would had to go with Magico Gonzalez. I learned to watch the game by watching him play, and and the joy that he provided was what I I have always expected. The best player out there needs to provide me that ooh ah factor. So you not know? just what he did, but how he did it. How he did like and and the one that asks that makes you ask the question like how did he do it. You know, how did he do that thing? And then you laugh and you you hug your your buddy next door and you're like, ah, you see what he did? <laughs> you know, and, and players that
0: bring a smile up to you. Realizing that this is maybe an almost impossible question, do you have a
1: favorite game that you have called in person? I, I get asked that question a lot. And, and you know what? You'd be surprised. I was not at the stadium, but I was close. And this is not the question, the answer to your question, but the semifinals at the 2012 London Olympics USA Canada. Oh, yeah. Must have been one of the most exciting games I've ever called. That's a women's game, Mm -hmm. by the way. Uh, 4 3. I guess the, ah, gee. Well, the the 2014 final was exciting. The Champions League final. uh, Sergio Ramos scoring in the 93rd minute uh, to tie it and send it into overtime. Now, overtime was just anticlimactic because Atletico were just drained. But I'd say overall, two thousand nine Champions League final, Manchester United, Barcelona, Barcelona wins two to nothing, just because of the whole thing. You know, I was always a fan of Olympic Games and just be in Olympic Stadium in Rome and 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 just everything. I mean, just it was just everything was majestic. You mentioned you mentioned Texas A and M. Is there a favorite thing, a favorite
0: memory you have from your time there, or maybe something A related that's happened to you since?
1: Wow, that that's another that 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 could <laughs> that's another podcast. Another podcast. But <laughs> favorite thing about Texas A and M, it's the network. I think, once an Aggie, always an Aggie. Right? You're never a, an ex A and M student. You're a former student, but you're always an Aggie. And and when you see an Aggie, you, they're part of your family because you know what they've gone through. You know the places they've been to. You know the bars they've visited. You know the studies. The halls they've had to, you know, the, the the couches they've had to take a nap on. You know, they take their hats off when you go into the MSC out of respect to those fallen soldiers that went to Texas AM. and You know, not to step on the grass around the MSC, and you know they have done it as well. They've stood for football games in the rain and the they've stood in the in the heat and and the cold, and they have witnessed many. A thing in sports that have united us, you know they've cried over football games and and we hugged during football games without not even knowing each other, so there's not one thing about a and m it's the whole thing about a and m it's just uh it's it's home for me
0: and finally, one of my favorite things about you, i believe correct me if I'm wrong, you still hold a national record in el salvador uh, what record is that and is is there any story behind when you said it
1: Well, that's the national record in uh in the javelin. Uh, javelin throw I was a javelin thrower in school not did not go to school because of athletics I went because of academics to AM. but I not I walked on the team and for four years I, I trained my butt off and then my senior year coach gave me a scholarship that was a, a one of the happiest moments of my life and uh and I went to represented a at nationals so I went to an NCAA championship and then I stayed because I wanted to go to the Olympics I stayed at AM training for it so a year after I. Graduated from AM, I threw this national record in Venezuela, in Maracaibo, at the Pachencho Romero Stadium, which is the home of, uh, used to be home of uh, of the national team of Venezuela. There's not a story behind it. Otherwise, no, maybe just a lesson that, that I was a very bad competitor when it came to big meats. So I know what joking means, right? <laughs> but this time around, I did not press myself. I just told myself to go enjoy it. It's not a story more, more so than it is a life lesson for me. I think that if you go out there and enjoy things without thinking that the end result, you're going to do good. So that time, I really enjoyed it. I went to the world championships and track. So in 1995, I saw a big stadium, 35,000 people in the stands, and they were all looking down at me because I was the only thing happening in that circus at the time. Javelin qualifying was the first thing happening. I was a second thrower in line on on the qual in my qualifying flight. So nothing else was going on. Nobody was warming up for anything. It was just the javelin. So 35,000 eyes, pair of eyes looking at me and I just my legs just buckled. And I thought, "Whoa, what if I fail?" And yeah, of course I did. This time around, there weren't as many fans in the stands. There was a Pretty good crowd, but I wasn't worrying about fading. I just I'm just gonna have fun. And I ended up beating my national record at the time and then that was the furthest I ever threw in competition. There you go. Still standing today. So still standing. I don't know if that's good or bad. I think that's says that more bad than good about how little we've developed in El Salvador when it comes to javelin. There you go. All right. Well, that's a that's a good story and a life lesson to end with. So ESPN's Fernando
0: Palomo, thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thank you, Paul. Enjoyed it. <laughs> Back in the True Media studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks to Fernando Palomo for joining us on the show. You can catch him on ESPN soccer coverage across English and Spanish networks and join his million-plus followers on Twitter at Fernando Palomo. I'm joined now by True Media producer Sergio de la Esperilla And speaking of Twitter, first I need to share a Fernando story from my ESPN days. So this is it's either Euro 2012 or the Confed Cup in 2013, and we're at dinner after one of the games, it might've been an off day, but so most of the talent producers are there and having dinner, whatever. Twitter comes up. So people are kind of talking about how many followers they have. This is, you know, relatively early days. I know Fernando's got the most followers of, I think, anyone at the table. So it was really funny just kind of going around, you know, oh, this guy's got 50,000, 100,000. Someone's got 200,000. This is great. And Fernando humbly doesn't say anything until finally somebody asks him, Fernando, what do you, what do you have? And he's like, uh, I'm over half a million. You know, it was like <laughs> double, pretty much and we're just like, "Whoa!" everyone yells. It was, anyway. It, you know, it was really funny. So, yeah, he's he's done a lot of good work on soccer coverage across multiple languages. And he's got the a Twitter following to prove it. So there's my one Fernando story. Uh, Sergio, what, uh, what else did you take out of this conversation we had with him?
2: Now, I took out that, you know, people with a lot of Twitter followers just hang around and compare Twitter followers. Me and my humble, I think, 300. This is what media uh, people do. Yeah. This is what media people do. <laughs> if you want to increase my Twitter followers, you can follow me at S-D-E-L-A-E-S. That's there you what go. We do. We plug. No, I really enjoyed the conversation with Fernando because the biggest thing that I took away because mm-hmm. Fernando is El Salvadorian. I'm Colombian. I think that I have this theory from my interaction with my families, from my interaction with my friends, other Latino friends, that the way that Latinos consume a sport like soccer is very emotional driven. We don't think about, so this is my theory, that Latinos don't think about sports or specifically soccer um, from an analytics perspective. So It's very interesting for me to see someone and and see how he uses statistics as a way to further inform his broadcast, right? The whole section that he talked about, uh, Jan Oblak, right? The, mm-hmm. the keeper for At- Atletico Madrid. I-, I find it interesting that he mentioned in that story and in others in-, in this episode that he will watch the games, right? Watch a few games. And then from there, he'll kind of take an inference of what he what he believes is happening, whether good or bad. And then he'll go to the numbers as kind of a, and what I- what am I seeing, right? Is what I'm seeing the... What's actually being happening, is it actually being reflected by the numbers? And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. And I think that that's very good. I've, I've said this a lot, and it's kind of my, uh, my my pound the table, I guess, here at True Media, where statistics are best when they're used as a tool and not a crutch. And I think that Fernando um, in those stories showed us that he really uses it as a tool and not so much as a crutch. And, and I like that um, he was very adamant that we as Latinos... Um, We have a bit more emotion when we are watching a soccer game. Not that non-Latinos don't, not that in English there is an emotion like what he said, but I I think that the way he uses statistics and the fact that Latinos have a bit more of an emotional attachment to the game, um, I think those go hand in hand and are able to give such a good product, a good broadcasting product that Fernando gives on ESPN
0: Plus and on, on other platforms that he calls games on. It's been interesting to me, particularly from the ESPN days, I've seen how not only, you know, the ESPN in the U S based out of Bristol uses Mm -hmm. numbers and and things like that, which is obviously a little more analytics data oriented than other countries, but to see how, you know, it went down to ESPN Mexico and see how they are using data. been ESPN Brazil, see how they're doing similar sorts of things. And it is really interesting because like you said, there's more generally speaking, there's more emotion in uh, the soccer coverage. They also, you know, that's so far the number one sport that they go deeper so it it was always interesting to see a that emotion was first and b they would also use data analysis tactics much more specifically to soccer than mm-hmm. US shows would. I mean, some of that is just, it's purely a factor of time and interest because, you know, their whole other one hour sports center, you know, 90% of it is soccer. So you're going to have opportunities to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was always interesting to me to see how they would balance those things, uh, just in a very different kind of sporting environment. And I then, also don't think, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Paul, but
2: I also don't think that it's an accident that, um, Fernando is such a big Texas A&M football fan <laughs> And he's also you know, such a passionate soccer fan as well. I think that the closest thing in the United States that we have to the intense Latin American soccer fandom, uh, European and specifically English soccer fandom, the mm-hmm. closest thing we have in the United States to that is college football. Okay. And obviously, the SEC is the top of college football. Yeah. So I joked with you earlier before we recorded that I, I was very happy to find someone else in the SEC football, Latin American soccer Venn diagram, and I think it has a lot to do with explaining the passion for a sport, right? In college football, you know, we have – I went to the University of Florida, so when I go to Gainesville, um, you know, everything in Gainesville is centered around the University of Florida. Everything in Athens is centered around the University of Georgia. Everything in College Station is centered around Texas A&M. So you have this, and not just in the SEC, but in other college football towns across the country – But you even see this at the high school level, right, in Texas with such the intense Texas Mm -hmm. high school football. So I I think an avenue for someone who doesn't have the history with Latin American soccer, doesn't have the history with English and European soccer to understand the emotion, I think that that can be found right here in our backyard with any college football game at any level because there's intense fandom at any level. The SEC just happens to be the one that I'm a fan of because of my school affiliation. But it happens all across all different levels. So I thought that that was also very interesting that he's such a big Texas A&M fan. I don't think it's a coincidence that that passion can translate to both sports.
0: Yeah, I've been to several soccer games, club and international in Mexico, and people ask me what it's like. And the best comparison I have for them is college football and SEC in particular, just because there is a... There's a, almost a tribal fierceness to your local club team or to your national team that we don't see in the US outside college football for a lot of the same reasons. Like I said, it's your town. That's what your town is. It's your town's team, things like that. And I want to go back to what you said about how Fernando is good at letting the story come and then filling it in with data, basically. And it reminds me, I may have said this on the podcast before, but I think there are always two good approaches to using data, uh, whether it's on TV, whether it's within a team, whatever. One is Take that story and then find the data that supports it or doesn't. You know, maybe you have a theory that player A is playing really well, but the data doesn't uh, show that. Maybe it's the other way around where it does support it. So I think one way is you start with the story. And then I think there are also times where you want to start with the numbers. Like I know when I'm analyzing a soccer game, maybe I didn't see it or maybe I just nothing clicked with me watching the game and I could just kind of look at the numbers and start there and see what emerges uh, from that. And there's not a right or wrong answer. Neither one of those is better than the other necessarily. It just kind of depends on the use case. Uh, But yeah, you can start with that story, find numbers to go or not go with what you're talking about, or you can start with the numbers and go from there. Again, there's advantages. I think when you're recruiting players on the soccer level, for example, sometimes you want to go in blind. Sometimes you want the scouts to say, okay, these are the guys that jumped out at me. What do you have? So there's two approaches. I think they work best when those are, like you said, they're both in your tool belt to be able to use when, whether it's analyzing a game, recruiting players, whatever it might be.
2: And I think that that's something that we, I mean, with us at True Media is something that we do. Like I came in, I I didn't have a background in, in data or or statistics. I had a storytelling background, right? Right. I have a theater degree. And then I also have a sports journalism degree. My, my background's in storytelling. So for me, I look at things from a storytelling perspective. Other people at the company would look at things with a data perspective. And both of those are okay. Like you said, there's no wrong answer. You just kind of have to find what works and each situation will lend itself to a different approach as well. So yep. I agree with that.
0: Yeah, as a comms major, I, that's how I started it too. Media and then mm-hmm. the numbers, you know, took math classes and also kind of came around to being able to attack it from both directions. So, yeah, yep, good stuff. All right. Thanks, Sergio. Thanks again to Fernando Palomo for joining us on the show. You can find plenty of other soccer guests in our show archives, including ESPN's Taylor Twelman, U.S. Men's National Team Head Coach Greg Berhalter, and Tom Warville, former athletic writer who just won the German Cup with RB Leipzig this past weekend. So congrats to them. Congrats to our other ProVision clients who have won trophies this European season, uh, including, among others, Real Madrid in La Liga, Bayern in the Bundesliga, Antwerp Frankfurt won Europa League, Inter Milan in Copa Italia, Real Batiste in Copa del Rey, Fulham in the championship, and many more. While you're in the archives, please rate and review our show. We always appreciate that. We'd love if you share the show on social media or anywhere else. And if you have feedback, please hit us up on Twitter at True Media Sports or me, at Paul Carr. Or you can email the show, networks.com. We'll be back in two weeks, planning to have an NBA guest to talk about the finals, all things basketball analytics. Until then, on behalf of Sergio de la Esperia and all of us here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world.